watchers in the fourth dimension. It's Runcible. Runcible, the fat to us. I confess you're a bigger idiot than I thought you were. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And vaporization without representation is against the Constitution. This episode, (laughs) we're off to Gallifrey where an old enemy lies in waiting. But before we dig into that, Riley's going to take a look at the mail. And we still have a fair backlog. So this episode, we're going to be looking at mail relating to the Seeds of Doom, as well as to our two bonus episodes on Blackadder and Phantom of the Paradise. Take it away, Riley. Speaking of Black Adder, Astrazon Danglebert Zebulon says, Am I pleased to see you or did I just put a canoe in my pocket? And Paul Arthur says, You have a woman's podcast, my lord. Amazing, amazing feedback. (laughs) Let's move on to the Seeds of Doom. Our good friend Alan Seiler says, One of my absolute favorites. It wears all of its many influences on its sleeve, but wears them all extremely well. I recall an interview, probably on the DVD, where Hinchcliffe said that he found the effects in this one to be not very convincing and a little embarrassing. But I disagree. I think all the effects are extremely good and very successful, with the one exception of that cliffhanger where some stagehand is clearly running towards the camera, holding up a blanket disguised as a crinoid. All the other effects, especially the model shot of the huge crinoid attacking the manor, are superb. I love the darker tone of this one. I would give this one a 9 out of 10 crash ceilings, but I'll raise it an extra half point for the glorious Amelia Ducat. And finally, Don, what a sad day it is that we've reached the end of your contributions to this great podcast. Your voice, humor, and insights will be missed. I'm very glad we got these final two shows with you. Rest well, my friend. Thank you, Alan. Kieran James Evans says, This is one of my all-time favorite stories with wonderful dialogue, wonderful direction, wonderful music, mostly. Balancing humor and darkness well, and of course the wonderful Amelia Ducat. Shame Hinchcliffe all but cuts her out of the novelization, only the Doctor and Sarah asking about the painting remains. The crap ending scene notwithstanding, I award this one 10 out of 10. What do you do for an encore, Doctor? I win. R.L. Gray says, this is one of my very favorite stories, and not just because I keep carnivorous plants in compost. Besides lots and lots of meat, I suppose Chase could eat mushrooms and other fungi. Good thing he lived in a time when vitamin C could be synthesized. Looking for a pun on scurvy slash scorby, but there's nothing comes to mind. J.M. Casey says, there's one way in which I do wish the story were just a little more like the Avengers, and that's the very end. The story has me totally engaged and totally on board with everything until the climax. While I love Chase's, he's in the garden, he's part of the garden bit. Everything with the faux unit boys is pretty flat and just blowing it up seems anticlimactic. We already saw that at the end of episode two. The Avengers has this thing where most of the episodes end in these crazy shenanigans with bodies and loose objects flying everywhere, machines going out of control, and total chaos basically. That's part of what makes the episodes fun, along with the closing scene of silliness with Steed and Emma or Tara, which become a real trademark season four onward. I think the story could have used a bit more of that. Yeah, those parts are silly, and The Avengers was a silly show, as silly in its own way as the American rival, The Man from Uncle. The Avengers learned to embrace this for the most part. Chase is quite an Avengerish villain too, so I don't think that just letting everything out and doing something a bit crazy would have hurt, or even taken that much away from the preceding darkness of the story. The Avengers has its share of dark moments too, after all. Gotta be real here, but listening to this one knowing it was the last Don would be here for was hard. However, it was so great to hear from him with his jokes and enthusiasm for the story, which I absolutely share. 
This is one of my absolute favorite of all Doctor Who stories for about 10 different reasons, and I'm glad to hear everyone had a good time with it, even Riley, who definitely rated it lower than I thought he might. That sort of thing happens, though. How dare you? I know. I know. Sean Collicutt says, So awesome to hear this. Don will be missed dearly. You guys are so entertaining to listen to. Well, thank you, Sean. Cat, also known as Citrine Dragonfly, says, It was lovely to hear your reasoning for keeping Don's commentary, and I'm glad you did. You all have such wonderful rapport, and having Don's final thoughts on the show is a wonderful tribute. He's missed by your listeners, and I'm so glad you're back as a podcast. Thank you very much, Cat. Nick Rutherford says, Love this episode, especially your sign-off regarding keeping loved ones close as you never know when it will be the last time you do something with them. Sad to hear Don sounded so poorly, but still with his humor on form, and fitting that his last story was a good one, that he liked, not a Space Pirates or something. <laughs> Can you imagine? Can you imagine? But to go on such a tear, though, to rip something apart would have been kind of glorious. <laughs> also, the last Doctor Who story you ever saw was the fucking Space Pirates. <laughs> that'd be awful yes oh well nick goes on to say that the discussion was as enjoyable as usual we chanced upon athelhampton house while driving back from devon earlier this year although i didn't see the queen victoria statue it is a beautiful location with links to the babington plot that i didn't know about and well worth a visit he could have put any sort of proper names there and i would completely believe him he could have just put nonsense there and i would have believed him Good luck with the podcast as you move forward without Don. I look forward to listening in every other week. So listeners, that's one thing. Just write to Riley about, you know, Little Cockington and places like that that <laughs> you can just make up and see what you can get him to say. God. Yes, please try to do that. Anything you mail in, he will read. And Anthony, make sure you save them for Riley. Oh, yes, definitely. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Nathan Law says, I feel like Chase is really believable as an insane rich collector. If you notice, he gets more and more insane as the story goes on. He originally wasn't out to do this so that the crinoid will take over the earth. He just wants it for his collection and things just escalate until he loses his mind. I much prefer the idea that he thinks that he's communing with the crinoid rather than that he actually does. That being said, this is nowhere near my favorite story of the Hinchcliffe run. I mean, Pyramids of Mars along beats it hands down. Don't worry, Nathan, you're not the only person that likes that story. It's fine. Yes, Nathan. You know, I didn't really feel the pain on this one, except when Don joked about what he wanted on his tombstone. That just hit really hard with the irony of it all. I am definitely glad you put his last work out there and definitely sad that we won't hear him again. Well, I think it's fitting with that comment that we now move into some mail we received from our tribute episode regarding Phantom of the Paradise. Joseph Staub says, it's going to be so emotional to listen to this one, especially to hear you guys discuss one of my all-time favorite films, Fan of the Paradise, as a tribute to Don. Keith Burton says, as my own peculiar tribute to Don, I decided to honor him by attempting to complete the sacred quest he set himself to find a connection between Doctor Who and Phantom of the Paradise. I believe I have succeeded. The poster for the movie was designed by the legendary John Alvin, who is revered for his iconic movie posters of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Another of John Alvin's posters is for the 2003 movie Looney Tunes Back in Action. Yes. Okay. Appearing in Looney Tunes Back in Action, I'm led to believe, are the Daleks. I yes. guess I... Oh, they are? They are. All right. Well, there you go. It's tenuous, but yes, that works. Slightly less tenuous than our Jessica Harper was also in shock treatment with Patricia Quinn, who was also in a Doctor Who story. Yeah. 
Wayne Drury says, a beautiful tribute to Don. Thank you all for the podcast. Love to Don, his partner, and to you all now. I have to take a look at Phantom of the Paradise also being in my 50s. <laughs> and Kat writes in again and says, this was such a fitting tribute for Don. And now I need to see Phantom of the Paradise. Also, I was right there with Julie. Don't mock Meatloaf. He was one of the greats. Bat 2 was the first cassette type I owned. And I'm going to jump in because I normally try to avoid having one person comment on multiple things in one episode. But I felt that the pronouncement to not mock Meatloaf (laughs) needed to be kept. So Kat managed (laughs) to get two comments this time. Absolutely. He's a fan of alliteration, folks. Keep that in mind. Charles Martin says, first off, let me say thank you for including my comments about Don in your tribute episode, which was wonderful and moving. My life goal now is to get people to feel about me after I'm gone with even just half the affection you obviously all have for each other and him. I, of course, enjoyed the final Don episode very much, but I have to admit, I think you have figured out the right way to carry on. It's great having a bit more time for Riley, Julie, and you, Anthony, to expand your comments, though, of course, we'll miss Don's occasionally, but usually witty interjections. By coincidence, your mention of Phantom of the Paradise came just as I was preparing to review the film for my blog. He used to do film reviews for a living, he says, and likes to keep in practice. Consequently, I've published the review and dedicated it to Don. Keep up the great work. You are so missed, and it's so nice to have you back. Well, thank you so much for that lovely tribute to Don there, Charles. And just as an aside on that, we posted that on our Facebook page. It'll be quite a while back by the time this goes out. So we will also drop a link to Charles's review of Phantom of the Paradise in the blurb for the show. So do go check it out. And that's the mail, Anthony. Thank you, Riley. And as a reminder to everyone, we really do love hearing your feedback, thoughts, comments, and questions. And as you've heard, we do try to read out as many as possible on the show. So please do get in touch. As usual, you can contact us through our socials, so Facebook, Instagram, and X at at Watchers4D. Or, of course, you can always just email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. We are also looking into the possibility of homing pigeons, but more to come on that. Moving on to our behind-the-scenes segment, and the earliest issue that the Deadly Assassin had to deal with was the departure of Elizabeth Sladen. Naturally, producer Philip Hinchcliffe and script editor Robert Holmes started to think about the next companion, but at the earliest stages of planning for this story, neither of them really had a clear vision of what the new character should be like. Tom Baker was also getting increasingly vocal with his belief that he could carry the show alone, talking to himself to advance the narrative and explain the plot. Thus, Hinchcliffe and Holmes agreed that a permanent companion would not be immediately introduced, but that a series of one-off characters would be created to help the Doctor in each story, and Holmes hoped that this approach would convince Baker of the need for a permanent companion for the Doctor. (laughs) Brief aside, Tom at points went kind of crazy with this, and I'm not sure if it was when Elizabeth Sladen leaves or whether it's when one of his later companion leaves, but at one point he started suggesting that he should have a talking cabbage that sat on his shoulder as his companion. (laughs) So he was a bit bonkers at times. Anyway... (laughs) Holmes decided to write the first post-Sarah serial himself, and as he was the show's script editor, this required approval from the BBC, as script editors generally weren't permitted to write for their own shows. This was duly given at the end of May 1976, but of course, Holmes was already quite far along with his scripts at this point. And based on a suggestion from Hinchcliffe, Holmes was basing his serial on various conspiracy thrillers with a particular reference to 1962's The Manchurian Candidate, which featured an American soldier brainwashed by China into attempting to assassinate the president. 
Holmes decided that he wanted to set his serial within the Time Lord Society, which he felt had not been thoroughly explored up until this point. Holmes thoroughly disliked the godlike image that they had previously been given, and he wanted to portray this as a mere facade, covering a corrupt and decaying society. He felt that the seeds for this had been laid by the introduction of so many Time Lord renegades in the past, including the meddling monk, the war chief, Omega, Morbius, and of course, the master. Speaking of the master, that character had not been seen on screen since 1973's Frontier in Space, as actor Roger Delgado had tragically died in a car crash not long after filming was completed. With three years having gone by, the production team felt that enough time had now passed to bring back the character. Holmes and Hinchcliffe were both starting to consider leaving the show, and so they wanted to bring back the master in a way that would leave the door open for the next production team to shape the character however they wanted. And with that, the master was to be brought back in very much a transitional state, clinging onto life as a desperate skeletal creature. Holmes's initial scripts were written under the title of The Dangerous Assassin, and he took the opportunity to lampoon many aspects of American culture. Going beyond the conspiracy-themed plotline that took inspiration from both the Manchurian Candidate and the real-life assassination of JFK, Holmes named the Time Lord organisation that had been manipulating the Doctor as the Celestial Intervention Agency, or CIA, <laughs> and had the Doctor make a quip, as Riley already alluded to, about vaporization without representation. Ah, that good old Holmesian wit. <laughs> Being one who never really cared about established law or the consequences of his own work, Holmes also added several new items to Gallifreyan mythology, most of which would go on to become pretty key elements, including Rassilon, the Eye of Harmony, the Matrix, the Prydonian Chapter, Artron Energy, and most significantly, the 12 Regeneration Limit. At one point, Holmes was considering abandoning the idea of not introducing a new companion in this serial, and was considering setting part four in Victorian London so that a Victorian street urchin could be introduced as the new companion. Uh, questions. No. How do you... No, never mind. Okay. <laughs> Someone that the Doctor could mention in the style of Henry Higgins with Eliza Doolittle in Pygmalion. <sighs> However... The decision was made to introduce the next companion later in the season, and the Victorian London plan was abandoned. Yay! <laughs> Keen to experiment with other settings, however, Hinchcliffe asked Holmes to write part of the serial as a surrealist nightmare, which could be shot entirely on location and on film. And this is what inspired the duel between the Doctor and Goth in The Matrix, which formed the majority of part three. Looking at our backstage team, assigned as director, we have the return of David Maloney, this is his seventh time in the director's chair for the show, and we most recently saw his work on season 13's Planet of Evil. Chris Doyley John, of course, continues his run as production unit manager, which he began at the start of the season. Dudders returns with incidental music for the 42nd time. <laughs> and Roger Murray Leach is our designer, making his sixth contribution to the show. And of course, we most recently saw his work in the previous season on both Planet of Evil and The Seeds of Doom. For this serial, we have two costume designers, one being the legendary James Aitchison, making his final contribution to the show. And of course, he will go on to win BAFTAs and Oscars for things like Time Bandits, Brazil, and the Sam Raimi Spider-Man trilogy, among other things. Joining him in the costume department is Joan Ellicott, making her one and only contribution to the show. And while not quite as illustrious as Aitchison's career, she would go on to receive a primetime Emmy nomination as well as two BAFTA nominations. She had a fairly eclectic career, working on several high-profile period pieces, 
as well as six of the Carry On movies. And I will let you guess which of those got her those nominations. <laughs> Carry On films, definitely. <laughs> that would be amazing, but sadly not. <laughs> of course, some changes were made in the editing booth after filming had been completed. Part two was originally scripted to end with the Doctor's fall after being attacked by the samurai. However, that episode was found to be running short and so was extended up to the train sequence. A late change to part three included the removal of a spider crawling along the Doctor's arm, which BBC head of serials Bill Slater thought was too disturbing for younger viewers. Okay. Uh, <laughs> more to come, more to come, Julie. <laughs> The final version of the serial was broadcast between October the 30th and November the 20th, 1976, with episodes going out at 6.05pm. At the end of the serial, the show went on hiatus for five weeks over the Christmas period, which was the longest gap to date in the middle of a season. And, of course, the serial once again drew the ire of Mary Whitehouse of the National Viewers and <laughs> Listeners Association. Yes. She was most vocal in her condemnation of the drowning scene at the end of part three and quoted a child who had apparently told his mother that he would do the same to his younger brother the next time he angered him. Oh. These complaints were successful in cajoling an apology from the director general of the BBC, Sir Charles Curran, and the master tape of part three was edited to expunge the freeze frame altogether, meaning that the BBC no longer held a complete copy of the original broadcast. And this would be later reconstructed with the help of off-air home video recordings. And when the show returns in January 1977, it would be in a later time slot. So some wins for Mary Whitehouse there. And that takes us into the episode's short summary, which is with me this time around. More Anthony. I know, I, my voice is going. <laughs> the Doctor is summoned back to Gallifrey, where the President is very quickly JFK'd and the Doctor framed, despite there being quite clearly a grassy knoll situation. Things are being manipulated from behind the scenes by Skeletor, um, I mean, <laughs> a shadowy skeletal figure who's eventually revealed to be the Master, who apparently has an operative within Time Lord society. To flush him out, the Doctor enters the Matrix 23 years before Keanu does, fights Bernard Horsfall to the death, <laughs> before emerging victorious for a final climactic showdown with Skeletor in the Panopticon. Despite appearances, everyone survives with the Master slinking off to fight again another day. All right, guys, I'm done talking. Let's talk about this one. <laughs> okay, well, I guess we should start with the rolling script first. <laughs> Why? We have <laughs> yeah. never well, done this before. And also the font choice. I guess that's supposed to be very Time Lord-ish font, I guess, to make us feel like we're really there. <laughs> I don't know what was going on with that. And it rolls. It actually rolls. It doesn't pan up. It rolls. <laughs> I think the only reason to do that is just to say, hey guys, this story's different. It sure is. I have a question. I know we were supposed to be keeping track of things that would be considered fan wank. Would this oh entire serial just be? <laughs> I'm so glad you brought that up. Y yes, very much so. <laughs> Obviously, he's already been brought up before, but that would be, I think, every fifth word out of Don's mouth in regards to this serial. Fan wake, fan wake, fan wake. Who cares? Who cares? <laughs> fan wake squared. Yeah, it's pretty outrageous. That being said, it takes the Doctor onto Gallifrey for the first time since the War Games. And we've always discussed how the Time Lords are dicks, and it's so great that the costumes provide them helmets to make them look like they actually have dickheads on their head. <laughs> the guards or the robed ones? Or yes. Both? I think both. Yes. First off, you've got 
the leader, the president, who looks like the Pope. And so then mm-hmm. they're going to assassinate him. And I'm like, yep, this looks like a Pope assassination with those robes. So great job doing what you wanted to do. And yes, the uniforms of the, what are they, the chancery guards? Yep. Chancery guards. I don't know what they were thinking. I have to say that must be the man's choice. And I am pretty certain that Joan's contribution was strictly the flowy white shirt that the doctor wears based off of her work on Rebecca, Pride and Prejudice and Anna Karenina. You know, I do want to defend those transfer guard (laughs) uniforms because they look really good in person. Someone showed up to Dragon Con in one a few years ago and I nerded out. In fact, (laughs) someone showed up to Dragon Con in a screen-worn one. Oh. Which was quite amazing. Oh. I'm sure you wish you had set your stasers on him so you could keep him still so you can get some photographs. <laughs> oh, stasers. Oh, boy. We're heading straight into Time Lord stuff, but let's very quickly talk about the Doctor's vision because I think it's quite interestingly shot. Lots of close-ups of him in the TARDIS and then the vision itself is shot with a fisheye lens. Mm-hmm. And I think it's very effective. Directing-wise, there are some good choices here in this. I maybe don't feel too strongly about the the filmed portion, which we'll get to in regards to how it was shot, but everything else within the set looks good, and the sets look good. And also, speaking of, we get that awesome TARDIS console again with writing drawer. I love that writing drawer. I still miss the central column. Very disappointed. And then we kind of have a cat and mouse game with our first new character of the serial, Castellan. Yeah, Castellan Spandrel. Castellan's the title. Castellan. Yeah, excuse me. Very German. I didn't realize he'd be so German. <laughs> yeah, and Frederick uh, Jaeger, who played him, we had previously seen him a couple of times before. He had been in, um, sorry, not Frederick Jaeger, George Pravda, we'd seen a couple mm. of times before as Alexander Denesh in season five's Enemy of the World and as Professor Jaeger, there we go, there in we season are. nine's The Mutants. Did anyone catch, I believe, in one of his first scenes, he's speaking to one of the guards? He puts something in his mouth. It looks like he's like puts gum in his mouth and I like it's it, a white pill was, or something. I was something. going with a mint. I guess. Just thought that was really out of place. I'm like, what? What's happening here? Was this like a dress rehearsal and he was just like, like, yeah, yeah, I'll just go and do this right now. I don't know what was going on. That was just bizarre. <laughs> I missed that, but cool. Oh, I saw that one. For once, I saw it. <laughs> you caught it. I really appreciated the music. In certain mm-hmm. parts of this, the bass clarinet was having so much fun. Just <laughs> all of the fun. And I'm like, yep, you go, bass clarinet. I don't know that any of it necessarily added a ton to the scenes other than just me being like, yeah, this is great. I mean, the music does a great job through it because it's a classic, as Anthony mentioned earlier, it's a thriller kind of espionage story in a way. And so... Mm-hmm. You can imagine that Dutters had it all planned out, a lot of influences, a lot of inspiration of what that type of music needs to sound like or should sound like to set that kind of mood. Absolutely. Beyond Spandrel, we're quite quickly introduced to several of our other key characters. We meet Barusa, who becomes quite an important Time Lord over the next few times we encounter the Time Lords. I'm not surprised. We meet Goth, who is played by Bernard Horsfall, who of course had been one of the Time Lords that sentenced the Doctor to exile on Earth, so I like to think he's the same Time Lord. Mm-hmm. And Runcible the Fatuous. Runcible. Fatuous. 
I love him. And I love the whole being a reporter thing. It was <laughs> it was so dumb, but awesome it at the is. same time. And what's amazing about it is the style in which Runcible reports on all of the Gallifrey and high society members filing into the Panopticon is exactly like the state opening of Parliament and how the BBC presents that. It was such a wonderful parody. <laughs> it was so good. But we have the Doctor running around, being on the TARDIS, not on the TARDIS, back on the TARDIS. Good job. But they just randomly had robes lying around. It looked like it was like a costume exhibit. <laughs> it was very convenient that they were just there. He knew exactly where to go. It's like, you know, sometimes you see those kind of exhibits like in an airport. I think that's where he went to, like the mm. airport in Gallifrey and picked that up. I want to talk about that conversation with Runcible where Runcible's like, do I know you? And he's so dismissive of the doctor until the doctor compliments him. Oh, yeah. And then he's suddenly like, oh, well, thank you very much. Like, you dick. <laughs> well, that's, oh. that's him. Oh, absolutely. But then even before that was the other two guys getting ready. Oh, yeah. I love that <laughs> the, scene. The doctor just comes in. And oh. Like, oh, here. <laughs> it's just, and they don't even question it. They're just like, oh, this other like lowly time lord is like helping us out. And boy, and I want to know what the gold usher's job is. I would imagine Gold Usher, there's a role in British Parliament called Black Rod. What? And it's a very ceremonial role. The reason he's called Black Rod is he carries a giant black staff that he uses to bang on the doors of Parliament. I would imagine it's a ceremonial role like that. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. All right. Cool. <laughs> How British can it be without being British? Our empire went so far that even the Time Lords are influenced by us. What can I say? Yeah. But we've also been introduced to what I am calling Zombie Master, oh, which I've heard before. And it took me into part two and I was like, oh, no, I know who this is. I was going to ask at what point you realized. Yeah, it was part two. I've seen him referred to as the Crispy Master online, oh. and I always like that one. I don't know why. That is a good one. He kind of looks to me, this is a horror movie reference. There's a very famous film zombie from Return of the Living Dead called Tar Man. If you look them up, they both have those same giant lacking of expression eyes. And also, they're both very greasy. The master's very greasy in this. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know what else to say. I mean, he is crispy, but also greasy. He's like, he's like a, like a fried piece of chicken, like in like Chinese food kind of sauce, like a sweet and sour thing. <laughs> Amazing. As we get to the end of the episode, the doctor notices that there is a gun set up on the balcony where we have already seen the cameraman taken down by a hooded figure, which we later find out is the master. The doctor runs up there, he raises the rifle and apparently shoots the president. And that's our cliffhanger going into part two. And then begins our portion of the defending your life slash investigation, solve the case so you're not convicted of it premise which is a great premise don't get me wrong i think it's really really good but i i think i guess it's part three where i start having issues with it and we'll save it for part three but part two the setup was good a very good setup and this is uh something that the show could do very very well but it doesn't necessarily go all the way and it hurts because part of the problem is as oftentimes on the show we already know 
a lot of the mystery. So you don't really have that thrill of watching the doctor discover it and fill you in as it happens. We already know he's playing catch up. But in this, we realize during part two, it's the master who's behind everything. But at what point did each of you clock on to the fact that the person he was working with was goth? <laughs> so when someone said, why would someone want to kill the retiring person? The next line that I put in my notes was because they knew they wouldn't be named as the successor. <laughs> so I pretty much almost immediately figured it out. And also his attitude. Yep, that's it. They were very upfront about his attitude. Yeah, I mean, he comes in, he calls for an immediate trial, and his reasoning's pretty sound. I mean, don't want Ooh. to create a constitutional crisis, we don't want to be seen as weak, we need to take action immediately. It kind of makes sense, but you also don't quite trust him. Right. It does seem kind of obvious right off the bat, and with me, it was the clearly the attitude issue, which is something that we're so familiar with, because on the show in the past, the asshole bosses... That's a constant thing. And so anyone that kind of acts like a jerk that's in a position of authority or immediately just put off, it would have been a lot more interesting if he was, I don't know, just charismatic or kind. Yeah. Instead of just being out there so clearly. Can we also talk about how Time Lord society apparently allows torture? Oh. oh I'm not surprised because Time Lords are dicks. There you go. <laughs> and then they do the good Time Lord, bad Time Lord routine. <laughs> I know, I noticed that. I do love the doctor's response of, I confess, I confess that you're an even bigger idiot than I thought. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, he does have some very good lines. That is one of the things that is very enjoyable about this, and they've been doing this often with the fourth doctor. He puts in some of the best quips out of probably so far they're on the show, the best quips the doctor's ever given, I think. They're all have had some really good lines for humor's sake, but I feel like fourth doctor really just nails it. I think so too. And I immediately love Spandrel in this. He's kind of harsh to the Doctor when he takes on the good cop role. He says, you're an embarrassment and tells him that he's going to be vaporized. But he's got this sarcasm and he kind of wins me over very, very quickly. I can't help but enjoy him. He's also sensible in that he's willing to listen to the Doctor and start helping him out. And that's so much more than we get from a lot of the other ones that I'm like, oh, you're the least dicks of the dicks. Yeah. Yeah. And then dicks of the dicks. <laughs> and I think there's a scene, particularly with him and Goth, where you can see that he isn't just a person to like just run this through. He really does take his time to think about it. And he does show the ability to question himself, which usually in positions of authority on this show, people don't do that. They oftentimes just say, that's my mind up right there. It's all done. Moving forward. Yeah, he's all about due process, which is kind of what you want in a cop, which is what he effectively is. He's the Tommy Lee Jones from The Fugitive in this serial. <laughs> so what does that make Engin or Engin? <laughs> Engin. Yeah, I love Engin. One of the things I wanted to mention <laughs> is if we didn't know it was the master yet, when we find the shrunk technician, that's yes. when you know. I love how Runcible <laughs> reacts, screams. Oh, God. And I don't know, does he faint? Yes. Do you think? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then the figure in black steals the discs. <laughs> Runcible, come on, buddy. Come on. <sighs> and yeah, there's the technician in the camera, shrunk down the calling card of the one and only master. You know, he really shouldn't be leaving his action figures around like that. <laughs> really shouldn't. I know. <sighs> and what's amazing is the master's clearly been on Gallifrey for a while. 
Mm-hmm. He's got this long convoluted plan. He's screwing around in their systems, looking at the doctor's data record, doing this, doing that, beaming the Matrix projection of the murder of the president into the doctor's mind. I mean, he's embedded himself. Which kind of puts into question, and maybe I missed this in the explanation, if he only put half of that effort in just stealing the items that he wanted at the end of the serial anyway, (laughs) instead of going through this long process of sending over the doctor, obviously he had revenge as a motivation. He wanted the doctor to be, you know... And there you uh, go. That's it. Remember, it's less about revenge. It's more of a, I want to show off to the doctor. Mm-hmm. See, I think that was the Delgado master. Yeah. This master's about revenge. Oh. This master is decayed and kind of unhinged because look at him. Poor guy must be in an enormous amount of pain. I guess the doctor went too far that time. (laughs) Let's talk about the doctor going into the Matrix. And is this a good point to talk about, Engin? Yes, we can talk about Engin. He's just such a sweet little old man. (laughs) (laughs) I wouldn't call him a sweet little old man. I want him to be my work buddy. I would work <laughs> alongside Engen. Because <laughs> he's snarky as well. That's true. That is true. I think his snark is delightful. So we're heading into the Matrix and we're in a quarry. Right, of course we are. Of, yeah, what ding, else ding, would ding, we ding, be ding. in? Quarry, quarry. I was thinking about this. And if we're looking into the mind of the master. It's not a quarry. It wouldn't be a quarry. And I do appreciate, I was very excited, the idea of the limitless imagination of the master. I was expecting, obviously, we have budget constraints, so we can't really do anything and everything. But I felt like even at this level, I was like, this is kind of tame. Like, you scare him by riding a train from a Disney World ride past him. I mean, the doctor thing, like when he actually had the syringe and stuff like that, that was okay. But I will say this, Anthony is right. This is a completely different master because I will tell you now if this was the third doctor and we were looking into delgado's mind with the doctor in there it would look very (laughs) different and hang on riley i want to stop you there because this is not the master's scenario this is goth oh this is goth who's setting this up and it's goth setting up this nightmare realm within the confines of the matrix so it's not directly entering his mind either so while I agree with you, the master would do something different to this. This is goth. Aha. I am corrected. Now, quite why a Time Lord politician sees all this nonsense, I don't know either. Yeah, I have lots of questions because an alligator. Okay. <laughs> that was an interesting choice. And also like the samurai was really bizarre. I don't really understand why that was used. I was just so hopeful that it would be something more like from the mind robber. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was seeing the same thing. And that's not what we got. We got basically a, oh, hey, you're stuck in the jungle type of thing. And basically by the end of it, you're just being hunted by a hunter, which is like, oh, so the guy from Jumanji. Cool. Or you could <laughs> say it's very similar to the most dangerous game. And moving on. The poor scarf gets cut in the Matrix. So it's okay because it was in the Matrix. Yes. <laughs> and yeah, then we go onto a cliffhanger with a train. Uh, I got nothing, guys. Right. Well, we just kind of collapsed the end of two and the end (laughs) of three there, which is fine because (laughs) this is where my big criticism of this serial comes into play. I mean, outside of the general lack of imagination, which is fine, you know, maybe Goth's a very boring person. You can't really think of very cool things. But the fact that this turns into like a survivalist 
kind of one man fighting another man in nature kind of story. At this point, I'm thinking, this is a third Doctor story. This is not a fourth Doctor story. This feels like a third Doctor story. In this scenario, a fourth Doctor story would be us doing a kind of Sherlock Holmes-esque story where he is getting clues, deducting whether or not it's this person or this person. We all stay in Gallifrey. We don't have bare-knuckle fights in swamps, you know? Mm -hmm. That's what I'm thinking right there. Yes and no. I mean, I don't think the third Doctor's era ever went quite as brutal as this episode. But then you also layer on the fact that this is the first time we've seen the Master since season 10. So that's naturally going to bring a third Doctor flavor to it anyway, even if it's not the same Master. So I think there are two things at play there. But this episode, I felt at times it had some great tension to it, but it's not quite what I want in a Doctor Who story. I want to get to part three and start talking about some things. Are we are we there yet? No, I think oh, yeah, we're, we're talking about yeah, part we're in three. There. Okay, first off, I do really, really enjoy the line, I deny this reality. And I'm just going to start using <laughs> that in real life. <laughs> you're going to use that when your alarm goes off at 4am for you to get to your flight tomorrow. Yes, yes, it's going to be wonderful and lovely. But I did then have a question. I know this is in Goth's mind. However, we still get the crazy laughter and the eyeballs. And I believe that's supposed to be the master. Is that just him kind of also going in the Matrix for a split second? I assume that's just Goth projecting that. I mean, he knows what the master looks like. He's been hanging out with him. Seems weird that Goth would choose to do that. But also, I don't Mm -hmm. understand why he chose alligators and clowns. Do they have clowns on Gallifrey? I mean, these <laughs> these guys don't travel. It's pretty well established that these right. guys are insular assholes who just hang around on Gallifrey and try and ignore everyone else because they don't interfere. How does this guy know about clowns? Yep. <laughs> yep. And then the plane. Like, yes, I'm going to choose like a little like old fighter pilot plane to try to shoot the dog. Like, what are you doing? It's bizarre. It would have been better if they had something that was, as what you're stating, something that was truly alien, something like, oh, he's going to imagine this horrible creature that only Time Lords are aware of. And so we see this thing. We don't know what it is. It looks terrifying. And then we see the doctor is very, very scared because it's something that only he knows personally, not the fact that a model train ran past his foot quickly. And then it turns more into like survivalist show. Yeah, yeah. And also, I really think that Tom Baker had just randomly started to chew on leaves. I don't think that the <laughs> director told you know, him that was, to do I that. think you're right. <laughs> that seems like a Tom Baker thing to do. <laughs> Probably got tired of doing that shot and just like, hide behind this, hide behind this. Okay, all right. I actually like the Dr. Poacher scenes a lot better than the biplane and the clown and the samurai. I think there's more tension in them. I'd say there's more tension. It still doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I'm right. with Julie on this one. And I think it all comes down to the fact that you get this setup about the Matrix and we're thinking we're going to get something abstract like the mine robber and we don't. And what I do like, I actually really like the cutaway scenes when we go back. I was going to mention those. And again, yes. and something with an S. Spandrel. Thank you. I really enjoyed those and how they were tracking what was going on, the breathing, and then obviously the blood sugar demand and everything. I thought that was pretty clever and was more interested on that end of 
things than in the Matrix itself. It was pretty cool to see the Doctor like plugged in and then to be told the physical impact that these things going on in the Matrix were having on his body, even though his physical body isn't going through anything itself. It's all the mental strain. I really like that. And speaking of Spandrel, when the Master sends his controlled guard down to try and sabotage everything and kill the Doctor, the way Spandrel pushes him away and then shoots him, badass. <laughs> Absolutely badass. Spandrel, my boy. He's like, go away, you're bothering me. Go away, go away. Okay, fine, I'm going to shoot you. Like, <laughs> Yeah, Spandrel, represent. Okay, so we have the final showdown in the swamp where... The swamp gas gets ignited and then Goth burns briefly before managing to shake off the flames and we end with Goth trying to drown the Doctor and a freeze frame on it. I mean, we love freeze frames in Doctor Who, don't we? <laughs> All I know is after I saw that scene, I got really filled with the urge to just drown every single person I see. <laughs> really wanted to do it. Can't explain it. We never had freeze frames before Genesis of the Daleks, and now I think this is our fourth one. Mm. And certainly we had one three episodes ago at the end of The Hand of Fear. Can we just stop with them, please? Not a fan. And that brings us to episode four, where our survivalist bit, all of a sudden, we have a completely different plot now. <laughs> yeah. Now a new motivation. Everything changes. The Doctor whacks Goth with a big stick and leaves the Matrix. Amazing. Also, I have a lot of questions about a lot of other things. I mean, first off, Goth doesn't look good. I guess being hit with a stick is worse than being drowned, but all right, great. But I was more curious about the whole no more regeneration possible for the master thing. Did I miss something? Did he just like shoot through all 12 really, really fast? So I think the implication is that Delgado was not the first master. So he's a fairly late one. And this is his final one. When did the whole them knowing each other when they were young happen? Was that in New Who? No, I think we heard about that in the Pertwee era. We certainly hear about it in Classic Who. Okay. I'm just curious if like, so the Doctor's just better at staying alive then. Cool. Yes. <laughs> All right. That's what I was getting at. Awesome. Which is funny because the Doctor does burn through his regenerations, I think, a lot faster than a Time Lord who just stays on Gallifrey. Well, yeah, because if all you're doing is pontificating about how awesome you are, yeah, you're not going to die. <laughs> but, you know, the master's in the process of doing evil stuff, which probably comes with more risk and so probably dies more often. Yeah, and he always like, sides with the wrong people. Yeah, let me side with the Daleks. Sure, that seems smart. All right, talking about the master, when Goth comes out of the Matrix, the master uses one of my favorite insults of the entire episode where he calls him a craven-hearted spineless poltroon. Ah, amazing. <laughs> Holmes had a gift for dialogue. <laughs> dialogue, yes. <laughs> and also, there were certain things where I'm like, well, this sounds like the actual appropriate political thing that someone would say, like the we must adjust the truth. Oh, yes. And just the whole overall plan of let's cover everything up. Wonderful. Yeah, it's definitely a huge commentary on the actualities of politics. And I think looking at JFK, we've had the grassy knoll and now the truth is being covered up. Yeah. I wanted to talk about Goth's motivation, which was entirely power, 
The master was dying when Goth found him on another planet. Goth apparently is one of the few Time Lords who does a bit of travel. <laughs> and he promises Goth knowledge and power. So Goth brings this renegade Time Lord back to Gallifrey. And when he finds out that he's not going to be the president's successor, he then is like, cool, I will help you destroy Gallifrey so I can be president. Of nothing? Okay, dude. Yeah. He's just an idiot. Yeah, basically. Blinded by power. Agreed. Yeah. Like, I got and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing else to say about that. And now we have our two MacGuffins, arguably. I guess the key is more important than the sash, but suddenly the serial shifts. And now we're not trying to figure out who assassinated the president. Now we're trying to figure out the motivations. Why? Because since Goth will no longer be able to become the president because his conspiracy has been found out, we now discover that the master actually didn't care who the president was because he just wanted them goodies. And this is where Engin tells us of Rassilon and about these relics. And I think this really tells us something about Time Lord Society because they have no idea what these relics actually do. They've lost the knowledge. To them, they're symbolic, they're purely ceremonial. So all of this stuff about being able to bring up the Eye of Harmony and unleash unlimited power that this guy Rassilon brought into place, first mention of Rassilon, they've forgotten about. And this really is showing a society in collapse, stagnation, decline. It's fascinating. That is a good element of it. I would also love to point out that this is an instance where the one woman that we get in the serial does not count towards the woman count because she is not on screen. <laughs> yep, she's just a voice. <sighs> I'm so mad. And I think she's a voice of a computer at that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, this gets a big zero on the Philip Hinchcliffe women count. I wish it could be like a negative one because we don't even have a companion. <laughs> but I'll leave it at zero. What I think is remarkable here is the master really does come so close to winning the day in this. And the doctor basically distracts him so that he can leap and start the fight. And it's only because the ground opens up and swallows him that the doctor wins against the master and is able to stabilize the eye. This is, I think, the closest that the master has ever come to actually winning. And I'm sorry to keep harping on it, but once again, that last scene just, I know he's done it before. I'm just not used to seeing the fourth doctor fight so much. I'm not used to seeing the fight scenes being like the climactic part of an episode. They're usually just the quick means to an end and then we move on. So this is why this feels so much like a third doctor story to me. And I know the third doctor didn't do too much fighting, but I do recall that being more of a climactic end to an episode rather than a means to an end. Yeah, it does feel very Third Doctor era to that point. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's actually was kind of a nice little remembrance of how the show was before. But I just don't see Tom Baker as a rock'em sock'em kind of doctor. That doesn't seem his style. I prefer my doctors not to be physical fighters. Yeah, yeah. Give me more trips with scarves or other uses for the scarf than actually like throwing knuckles around. Well, what I will tell you is after this season, things get a lot sillier. Oh boy. Interesting. Once the master's defeated, we're all saying our goodbyes, and I really love how flippant the doctor is to Barusa. And of course, he's calling him Sir, and Barusa gives him 9 out of 10, which I think is just so funny. He's still grading him like he's his student. Barusa is not a, I'm not a fan. <laughs> I mean, the character's good. I don't get me wrong. I just, he's just perfect Time Lord. He's a complete dick. 
<laughs> well, it's like, yeah, you just saved our entire planet and society. Nine out of ten, boy. <laughs> At least we get goodbyes to Spandrel and Engine. And it doesn't Engin. feel awkward. Engin. It doesn't. And I do want to say about Spandrel and Engin, they are a classic Robert Holmes duo and they work well together. There are things Holmes does really well. And again, those kind of duos, dialogue, and just driving a bulldozer through established continuity. Those are his wheelhouses. As we end this, the master gets into his grandfather clock and dematerializes. <laughs> and that's the end of the story until the next time. We've already established we've had a quarry. We've had zero women. We've had zero jelly babies <laughs> and zero I'll explain laters. Does this get any camp count points? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Barusa. You think so? Barusa, you think he's uh, worthy of At least some? a half. At least a half. Julie, what say you? Let's just give a one for the entire story. Okay. All right. It's not super camp, but there's a few things. It's super wank, but not super camp. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. Um, before we wrap up, because we haven't really talked about it, this is Peter Pratt's only appearance as the master. Really? Yes. He knew Roger Delgado was a friend of his. So what do we think of his one appearance as the master? Do you think he was good? Do you think he was a worthy addition to the canon as this different type of master? So what you're telling me is this is the last I'm get to see of like the sesame chicken master? Nope, nope. We do see him again. It's just a different actor. Okay, good. Whew. I was getting concerned there. I mean, I know it looks ridiculous, but I do kind of like the zombie look. I like it. I think his performance was fine. I think, though, that mask made it a little bit difficult for him to really deliver his lines, though. I agree. You could barely tell that the mouth moved and everything. You can't <laughs> emote very well when you're in that kind of a situation. But if that was literally him laughing during that whole sequence in The Matrix, then great job. That was fun. I like him. I think he's a very kind of classically trained actor, did a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan operettas, quite <laughs> actually celebrated for that. I think he put in a good shift here, and it's a shame we won't see him again, although the next iteration of The Crispy Master is also very good. Let's rate this one, and sorry, Julie, we're going to start with you. All right. I still don't know how I feel about this whole thing. <laughs> there are parts of it that are really well done. It is very well acted it's very well directed in most situations the music's good there are some really great characters there are some really dick characters that you know what i like them for that anyway but the whole sequence in the matrix was a little bit of a letdown wanted it to be weirder for once riley i'm agreeing with you there <laughs> but i also did enjoy the master being there i thought it was very bizarre to go from this whole matrix thing to oh hey look sasha Frazzalon. But all right, we'll go with it. So I'm going to give it six and a half crispy yet gooey skull faces <laughs> out of ten. All right, Riley, let's hear yours. I know I keep harping on this. This is a third Doctor story, and that's all well and good. I do miss those kind of stories. It's been a while, but I don't think the fourth Doctor works in a story like this. The premise is good. Having the fourth Doctor having to solve a case that he's been framed has a lot of potential but instead we get a first episode and last episode riddled with fan wank with a survivalist fight in the middle so basically what you have is a fan wank sandwich here <laughs> but julie's right i mean it's still a fun experience and i didn't get a chance to mention this this thing right off the bat moves at a super fast pace mm -hmm. it is moving 
And I appreciate that. That's good. You know, it had a lot of energy going on in this entire serial. So good sets, decent premise. I do like Zombie Master a lot, but I just feel that this could have been better as a third Doctor story. So I will give this six and a half left out action figures out of 10. Wow. I'm in a really different place to the two of you. <laughs> I kind of enjoy the fan wank. <laughs> I enjoy finding out more about this previously seemingly all-powerful Time Lord society. And when you do find out about them, they're kind of shit. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. They're a bunch of old dudes in robes poncing around, and yet they're not particularly competent. And you enjoy learning that? And they can't even remember why they're doing the things they're doing. Yeah, it's a really nice twist in that these supposedly godlike individuals really aren't all that. And I think that's fascinating. That's real life. It's not <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> it's Zardoz is what it is. Yeah, it is Zardoz. And I enjoy the master. I think he's great. I enjoy the concept of the Matrix, although I do think and I do agree with both of you that that could have been done a bit better. Could have been weirder, could have been more surreal. I mean, the brief for that episode was Surrealist Nightmare. I didn't really get Surrealist Nightmare. You can't just have a clown in a mirror and call that a Surrealist Nightmare. <laughs> but great characters, good dialogue. Nice to see Bernard Horsfall back as a Time Lord. And again, I like to think it's the same one from the War Games. Enjoy the Crispy Master. And I really like Spandrel and Engin. I think they're, a, again, a classic Robert Holmes duo. So for me, I'm going to rate this a fair bit higher than the two of you and give this 8 out of 10 Forgotten Relics of Rassilon, <laughs> which gives us an overall story average of 7 out of 10. So the season's progressively getting higher and higher scores as we go along. All right, that is all we have time for this episode. We will be back next time around when we will encounter a face of evil. But until then, as always, thank you so very much for listening. And of course, have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Riley Shrek, Julie Filipek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, crispy but also greasy, was recorded on Monday the 16th of October 2023. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and X at atwatchers4d, and you can also email us at watchers4d at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, make sure you get some fried rice with your sesame chicken. It really is the best way to enjoy it.